0: banking services provided by green.bank member fdic only funds and envelopes earn apy apy can change at any time
1: the truth is we are in a climate emergency we have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our society and way of life and
2: our economy i want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be careful about criticizing those who have
3: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts.
3: Well, the government has issued a stunning and rapid U-turn, it would seem, and ditched the plans to overhaul the oversight of MPs' conduct. Only yesterday, Conservative MPs voted against suspending their Tory colleague, MP and former Minister Owen Paterson, after he repeatedly breached lobbying rules for companies who were paying him. But the leader of the House, Jacob Rees-Mogg, is reported to have told the Commons there was a strong feeling that any change to the standards process should not be based on a single case. Now, Labour had accused the government of wallowing in sleaze, their words, after the controversial vote in the House of Commons.
2: Well, in Glasgow, 20 nations are pledging to limit funding for fossil fuel projects, though notable exceptions include China and Japan. Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng says that that shouldn't overshadow the progress being made at the climate summit. Even in China... Uh, they've announced that they're not going to be investing in overseas uh, coal mining. So that's a a big step. Obviously, we want to go further, but I don't think we should play down the significance of today's announcements. Well, let's get back to our top story. It looks like the government has responded to the backlash after Conservative MPs voted to change the rules on the way MPs' conduct is policed, blocking the suspension of former Minister Owen Paterson. Well, let's uh, speak to Fleur Anderson. She's Labour MP for Putney in London. Fleur, uh, a welcome uh, U-turn, it looks like, uh, coming from the government.
1: Well, they've been forced into this change. They should never have tried to put through the, the, the new system last night without, without cross-party support, and, and clearly trying to change the rules on the basis of one case, and so that both justice was not seen to be done for, for Owen Patterson, and the way in which he has broken the rules and benefited financially from that. But also the system they were bringing in was all wrong as well. A system that has worked very well in terms of the standards and, and regulating the, the, what MPs are doing, had, had support all this way and suddenly to change it, but then change it back. How confusing is this? And I don't think government come out of this very well at all. That, that lingering censure of fleas remains, and we'll, we'll see what comes next. But it, it looks like a confusing mismatch, mixed match now between... What will happen to Owen Patterson, and I hope that the, the findings of the committee, that he broke the rules, will be upheld. But then what will happen to the system overall has really got to be uh, rethought entirely. So I'm, I welcome it. I welcome a change. But uh, really, it shouldn't have happened in the first place.
3: Yes, OK, so I get I get the sense of a bit of whiplash in Westminster uh, from you, Fleur, this morning. Uh, look, what about Patterson, though, himself? He says that it's time to create a proper system based on the rules of natural justice, and, and he has been adamant that he wasn't given the opportunity to defend himself. Do you have any sympathy with that? Well, I've listened to very clear, closely to Chris Bryant, who's the chair of the Public Standards
1: Committee, and the process that he went um that there was a very fair process that the evidence was received and looked at he got a chance to speak to the committee he was given the um the report and he had a chance to um respond to the report and then the and uh, then the the penalty was given and that's been a very pro- fair process and accepted for for MPs up to now the way to have a change of the system would be now to and, and every year that committee does look at its own work does say yes it could be better um, and does implement some changes that would have been the way to do it not have a whole overhaul of the system it's like being taken up at work being found guilty of doing something and then asking for the whole hr department to leave on mass that's not the way to do it
2: the leader of the house jacob Rees-Mogg, now says that the changes won't go ahead um, without cross-party support will labour work with the government in in clearing up this mess
1: we would not have worked with the government on the proposal from last night about the the new committee, but I think obviously we will work with the government on talking about uh, future changes, but not on the basis that Owen Patterson gets a free ride, um, gets off scot-free, um, and, and I'm glad that those two things have now been separated. But of course the Labour will work with the government on um, improving our standards if, if that seems to be needed. But the, I think the government, it's up to them to do a lot more work to to prove
3: that this is needed. Okay. does it do any damage then to other parties, do you think? I mean, that was also a a significant concern that actually, in the eyes of voters perhaps, um, you know, that that MPs are not being held to, to high enough standards and that actually all parties, including yours, could end up sort of suffering from that.
1: Yeah, I agree that lots of people will look at this and just say, oh, all MPs are on the make which is absolutely not what is happening. Some MPs have fallen foul of the rules, have broken the rules, have done the wrong thing, but that should not tar all of us. But inevitably it does. Inevitably people don't look at, the, at who's voted for what, which side's doing what. They just think um, all MPs are disreputable. And that is a dreadful situation we're in. I want everyone to get involved in, more in our political, um, in our politics, to feel that we are representing them and we are doing that fairly. And this is definitely a step back for that. I've just been on the Elections Bill Committee as well, looking at how we'll be doing elections. And that's a real, really big concern of mine, that not enough people even vote. So many people just say, I don't don't want to be part of this system. I I don't see what it's got to do with me. Um, And I think we should be going in a wholly other direction of saying this is for everyone. We should all be involved. Um, So calling out one MP, but also looking that we're all tarred with the same brush does not help at all.
2: Well, it'll be fascinating to watch developments of this over the next uh, twenty-four hours. So, let's move on to the other big topic of the week: the environment. What's the UK doing well, and and what more does it need to do to meet its its climate commitments?
1: So, one area I'm looking at uh, is a particular area of uh, wet wipes. So, there's a, there's a lot more that we could be doing. For example, on on green homes is one example of where I've been looking at where we the Green Homes Grant, we've got the leakiest homes in Europe, we could be doing so much more. Um, Obviously on on transport, we need to be really um, changing the way we operate our our transport systems and looking at more environmental travel. But the the, the one thing I've been talking about almost obsessively all week is about Mm -hmm. uh, the plastics. Um, And I think we could do so much more to reducing our plastics. We have been learning much more from um, David Attenborough and others about the impact that the plastic that we have on our environment goes out into our marine environment, into our rivers, into our seas, and kills fish and other marine life. And that plastic never degrades; those microplastics just stay around forever. And one source of them in the UK is wet wipes. And I think people have been really surprised, as I was, when I looked into this to find out that even that wet wipes have plastic in them. But they are—it's what gives them their strength. But they don't need to be made from plastic anymore. So we use about 11 billion wet wipes across the UK every year. And that's going up because of COVID. You know, we're, we're using them for many more things, even at work, wiping down work surfaces and so on. So the usage is going up. And 10%, only 10% of wet wipes don't have plastic in them so far. But they show that they can be made perfectly well from bamboo, cellulose, other materials that break down that don't get eaten by fish and cause them to die of starvation, that don't end up littering the banks of our rivers, don't go out onto beaches, don't block up our drains. 300,000 drain blockages are caused from this horrible mixture of wet wipes and fat every year. And that's a huge cost to the water companies. That gets passed back to us. So a win for the environment and a win for us, our pockets and our bills um, would be to take plastic out of wet wipes.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I use a wet wipe or two, and I certainly knew about the problem of them being flushed and how many we're using, but I didn't. I mean, I'm grateful for you to you for raising the issue of how many of them contain plastic. But, um, you know a good initiative as this there may be, you know, it's, it really is a kind of drop in the in the ocean when it comes to solving the climate problems and also, even for this you're going to need government support uh, to, to push this forward. I mean, what do the government or ministers that you've spoken to say about it? Will they join the battle against uh, plastic wet wipes?
1: Well, I was speaking with the Environment Minister only yesterday because, uh, uh, with Rebecca Powell, because she knows that the wet wipes have been such a a big issue and come to the fore now. And I've been working with her on the Environment Bill, which is due to be coming back to the House of Commons on Monday. It's going between the Commons and the Lords with various uh, amendments being proposed. And all of those amendments are just pushing the government to do more, to be more ambitious, for example, on air pollution, to set the, the World Health Organisation air quality targets, which the government is resisting, and to do more on river sewage, been a lot of coverage of that, that we can do more to stop um, water companies pouring out sewage into our rivers um, and to to give the Office of Environmental Protection, and this is really important for the whole piece, more teeth. At the moment, the Office of Environmental Protection, they're going to be the watchdog, the police, they're going to be the ones enforcing all of these new environmental targets and they should be much stronger. So I'll be working with them.
2: Hmm. Just uh, on Labour, you represent a mostly comfortably off middle class seat in the capital city, and yours was the only gain for Labour in that disastrous twenty nine nineteen election. What does the party need to do to win seats that look different to yours?
1: Well, first of all, don't think we're a comfortably off middle class seat. We've got uh, I've got uh, Roehampton in my constituency, which is the largest housing estate in Europe, and um, we have got such a disparity of an inequality and, and a growing inequality under COVID between. Um, different communities within my constituency and that's very true for London but obviously true for the whole country as well. We have um, such a difference in uh, income levels and life experience and what they can expect from public services and from government Um, and I think a lot of it's got to be just working with the local community, we've got to be seen to be the the people who are on their side Um, and that's what I hope to be and I hope I am in Putney, just working with Mm -hmm. the local community I used to run a local community centre Um, I really, really understand what is happening in Southfield, in Roehampton, in Putney, And that's what we have to do everywhere. And and that's what Labour is really good at,
0: standing on the side of people. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: A Scottish boat being held by France over the post-Brexit fishing row has now arrived back in the UK. It was released yesterday without a fine as talks continue to resolve the arguments over licences to fish in different waters. Brexit Minister David Frost is in Paris today. France says it will enact measures against the UK if the discussions fail.
3: And coronavirus infections in England reached their highest level yet in October, according to a large study led by Imperial College London. While hospitalisations and deaths remained low, infections increased to one in 58 people, more than double the level in the previous month's report. Cases among children also remained the highest.
2: Nurses are voting today on whether to take industrial action in the ongoing dispute over NHS pay. The Royal College of Nursing is continuing its campaign against the government's controversial 3% increase along with other health workers unions. The RCN says that with inflation forecast to be around 4%, nursing staff will be worse off in real terms.
3: And now, onto our conversation this morning. For some time it's been evident that maternity care in Britain is failing too many families. From the infamous mid-staff scandal, where between 400 and 1,200 patients died as a result of poor care in the 2000s, to more recent failings at Morecambe Bay and now investigations into Shrewsbury and Telford NHS Trust. Donna Ockenden looking into more than 1,800 cases and unusually high maternal deaths up until 2018.
2: It seems COVID's only exacerbating these problems. The president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists says that maternity services are near breaking point. Earlier this month, the NHS revealed that nearly a fifth of the most critically ill COVID patients are unvaccinated pregnant women.
3: And a new report out this week has shed light on how inequality and ethnicity are responsible for a substantial proportion of the worst outcomes, stillbirths, preterm births and low-weight births in England, a study of more than 1.2 million pregnant women. Well, joining me now is Professor Asma Khalil, who is co-author of that report and a spokesperson for the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. Professor Khalil, welcome to the programme. Um... How big a role does race and socioeconomic background play in poor outcomes for mothers and babies? Can you just explain the big lines of this huge study that you conducted?
4: Uh, we, In this study, we looked at uh, more than 1 million births in England. That's nearly 95% of the births in the duration of the study. And uh, we found that two-thirds of birth in the most deprived black women would not have occurred if they had the same risk as white women in the most affluent group and we also found that nearly three quarters of small babies, so that baby is not growing in, in inside the womb, in the most deprived Asian women would not have occurred if they had the same risk as white women in the most affluent group.
2: And can we say what why that is can we dig down into what's brought that about
4: um, well i think the study um highlighted that um we have ethnic and socioeconomic inequalities and uh, these inequalities contribute to um, a significant large proportion of um adverse pregnancy outcomes but particularly still birth, preterm birth prematurity and having a small baby and that's most likely highlight the fact that we have disparities, inequalities and um, that the fact that it's time that we need to have a it's time to act. We need to have mm. a concerted action. We need to get the clinician, the midwives and obstetricians to work with the public health specialists, with the politicians with the policy makers to tackle this problem. This, this is, has been going on for a long time and I think it's time to act.
3: Okay, can this only be solved with more money for the NHS or are there other things that your study points to that can be done now?
4: Um, it's not necessarily money. Um, we know that there are some interventions that target um, health inequalities. Things like stopping smoking, for example, things promote healthy diet to tackle obesity in pregnancy. Um tackling mental health issues, um, particularly in women from socioeconomic or deprived backgrounds. So there are a number of interventions that we can do without necessarily having to have a a, a lot of money from the government to tackle racism, discrimination, you know, things that have been going on for a while.
2: Is this um, is this about poverty, or is this is this about how people are treated within the NHS, or, or is it a combination of those two things?
4: I think the study is difficult to tease out. Is it poverty, or is it a, is it actually a, you know sort of a, the system itself is not delivering the required health care to these women? I mean, we have national target of reducing stillbirths of halving our stillbirth rate. By 2025, as well as reducing prematurity, preterm births, by 25 percent by 2025, and I think one concern is that unless we target the high-risk group, unless we target women from ethnic minorities and women from um, deprived background, I think there is a real risk that the gap is even wider.
3: Mm. Um some of these scandals that I referenced earlier um, were blamed on the drive, for example, for natural birth uh, above other sorts of interventions are, are those sorts of pathways also leading to greater risk that that the, the emphasis on natural birth and um, a non-medicalized intervention
4: um I mean that certainly could potentially contribute to the problem. But also, um, when we were um, discussing the, the point earlier, do we have to have money to address this problem? And the answer is not. So, for example, if we know that women have high risk of stillbirth, one potentially effective intervention is induction of labour. So, so rather than um, emphasising on natural birth and waiting for labour to start, if you know that this woman has higher chance of stillbirths, that potentially induction, earlier induction of labour could potentially save this baby's life.
2: How do we compare uh, internationally? How are England and Wales doing when you compare us to other countries in Europe, for instance?
4: Well, unfortunately, the United Kingdom has one of the highest stillbirth rates in uh, Western Europe, and that was one of the reasons why a few uh, years ago the government had initiated this national target of halving birth rate in, in the UK by, by 2025 in order to address this, um, unfortunately, higher birth rate in the uh, UK.
3: Um, we've spoken to a number of leading um, female MPs on this issue, including to the Labour MP Bel Ribeiro Addy, who spoke of powerfully, movingly in Parliament to her colleagues on the benches about stillbirth that she experienced personally. Do you think that this issue is being heard? Because also, you know, health inequality has emerged now as, as a really pressing issue, also partly because of Covid do you think that NHS trusts or the government are now listening to an issue, you know, that affects so many families, more than 600,000 births last year in, in England and Wales?
4: Um, I think that the, the study is really timely because um, the United Kingdom, the, in the government, the um, official organisations, Um, are focusing on this problem of inequalities, And I feel that there is certainly um, a feeling that we need to do something about it. We need, we've measured the problem. We highlighted the fact that ethnic and socioeconomic inequality contribute to a large proportion of still prematurity of small babies in England. It's time to act. And In order to have an effective intervention, it needs to involve a number of people. It's not just going to be only the government. It's not going to be just the clinician or the doctors and the midwives. It's not just going to be public health doctors. They need to act together and look at interventions that we Mm -hmm. have evidence that they do work in the general population, as well as the high-risk population, and focusing on women from the highest risk group, which is women from ethnic minorities and women from... Uh, deprived
3: background. And, and how would you characterise the kind of balance in terms of action required? Because there is a split, isn't there, in terms of the view of how much action is required by the women themselves, the pregnant women, versus the sort of action that is needed, as you say, at government and then at NHS and at kind of midwife and, and nursing level.
4: Um, yes, but I don't think we can blame pregnant women. It's our duty to educate pregnant women about what they expect during pregnancy and ensure that there is no misinformation and ensure that we don't have all the emphasis on achieving natural birth. And the fact that intervention is not a bad thing during pregnancy when it's needed or induction of labor when a woman has high risk of stillbirth is not a bad intervention.
2: And and just briefly, is there a problem with staffing? Do we have too few people in this sector?
4: I mean, the NHS is under um, uh, pressure and certainly there is a a general shortage of staff. Um, But And that's certainly one of the things that we need to um, address while we're having this concerted effort to address or tackle inequalities. But this is not only the problem. I think, I think we need to work with the public health. We need to address mental health issues. Mm. We need to provide support, social support, to uh, women in need, uh, particularly those of deprived background.
2: Bloomberg Westminster, listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.